Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the Board of Directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning and hello to all podcast listeners and lovers of the law. This is the See You in Court podcast, and today we are happy to have a panel of expert lawyers and judges talking about the crisis that we're in now with the coronavirus crisis and the shutdown of our courts uh, for, for most purposes. Uh, I want to introduce our guests first, and then we'll get right into the meat of it. Uh, first of all, we have with us Judge Carla Brown. Uh, She is a judge in the Gwinnett County State Court in Lawrenceville, Georgia. She was admitted to the bar in 1989 uh, and appointed to the bench in 2003 by Governor Perdue, and since then has been reelected four times to that position. And I believe, Judge Brown, you're running for reelection again this year. Is that is that correct? That is correct. Um, if we ever have an election. Okay. Uh, we'll be looking for the uh, Gwinnett folks be looking for. Um, she, Judge Brown, has worked with her colleagues to establish the Gwinnett County DUI Court and the Veterans uh, Intervention Program, which is a, an accountability court. She was in private practice from 1989 to 2003. Uh, doing primarily felony criminal defense and uh, representing fathers seeking custody in domestic cases. She has her undergraduate degree from Mercer and her law degree from Mercer. Uh, And I understand she was classmates at uh, Mercer Law School with one of our other guests, Chris Clark. And um, uh, Judge, we'll talk about the law school stories after we finish taping, okay? I've already sent Chris his required bribe to remain silent. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We have with us Chris Clark, uh, trial lawyer from Macon, Georgia. He is the uh, owner and principal in his own law firm, Clark Smith Sizemore. Um, He received his undergraduate degree, summa cum laude, from the Citadel. And then his law degree, as we said, from Mercer Law School. He was admitted to the bar in 1989 after serving in the United States Army. Uh, and he is a past president of Georgia Trial Lawyers Association, past president of Macon Bar Association, uh, and and member of ABOTA, American Board of Trial Advocates, and was on the State, uh, State Bar of Georgia Board of Governors for a number of years. Welcome. Uh, Chris. And we also have with us Matt Moffitt. Matt is a renowned uh, defense, civil defense attorney. He's a principal and owner in the firm Gray, Rust, St. Amon, Moffitt, and Brisky. Uh, he is a past president of the Georgia Defense Lawyers Association, a member of the DRI Defense Research Institute, and has uh, presented numerous times uh, with that institute. He has tried over 100 trials and was admitted to the bar in 1990. And I can say from personal experience, Matt is a formidable opponent. Uh, So welcome to all of our guests and thank you and welcome to the show and thank you for being here. 
Yeah, let me uh, let me join in uh, Robin's chorus of welcoming uh, welcoming the three of you. Thank you for coming in. I was sitting here thinking, you know, if I needed to sue somebody, Chris is who I'd go to. If I got sued, I'd go to go to Matt uh, to get my defense. And if I got to pick the judge, I'd I'd pick uh, pick Judge Brown uh, because uh, all all three of them are just outstanding at what they do. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna start today. We're in the middle of the the COVID nineteen pandemic, which is uh, uh, something uh, unlike anything I've ever seen in my thirty years of practicing law. We uh, had an uh, earlier guest uh, on our podcast was talking about that was admitted uh, to practice law when I was three years old. He said he had never seen anything like this. So we're truly in sort of uncharted waters here. Uh, we are now under a uh, judicial emergency uh, order from the Georgia Supreme Court. Justice Melton put that in place to try to deal with the uh, with the pandemic. Uh, and of course, uh, he's he's plowing new ground everywhere he goes because he he hadn't hadn't seen this before either. Uh, but there are a lot of different uh, aspects of that, and uh, I, I think I'd like to just start with Judge Brown because while. Robin and I and, and, and Matt and uh, Chris are in court from time to time. You know, Judge Brown, you're in court. You're at the courthouse every day. So uh, tell us how this uh, judicial emergency declaration has affected the day-to-day activities of the courts. And uh, maybe just give us a little uh, hint of where, of where you see it going uh, in your view from the bench. Uh, that's a that's a really um, big question. It, it certainly has been interesting, to say the least. Um, the The challenges that we face are uh, things that that you take for granted every day. Uh, with all of us trying to operate remotely, thank goodness technology is what it is and allowing us to do that. Um, but we're having to figure out very simple things, such as. Uh, our e-file system in Gwinnett County is not yet equipped to do criminal e-file. So as a judge, I'm sitting here at my desk at my house, and I need to sign a, um, a bond order, for example. So I sign it, but then what do I do with it? Um, so we figured out you know, a way, just simply a way to get an order filed with clerk um, when you're not physically present in the courthouse. Um, so even the, the little things that we take for granted, you know, we've, we've figured out, but I think with technology the way that it is, e-filing certainly is something that all the courts are fortunate to be starting. And if we can get criminal on board, then that'll be a big relief. You know, we're, we're moving forward. I think that we all have to adapt. Um, we're doing hearings by Zoom a lot. Um, we're trying to utilize open courtroom by um, live streaming to YouTube. I did a hearing on Wednesday with 15 attorneys in a wrongful death suit, and we held it um, completely by Zoom. I was um, on the computer. My court reporter um, was with me so that she could take the matter down. You know, we're just all trying to figure it out, um, but that was done with a closed courtroom, and I think we're going to see a lot more things handled that way. I'm sure that Justice Melton, when he gives us more direction on Monday, will hopefully give us some more things that we are able to do by video. And I think in the future, um, you know, the, the big challenge that we're going to have as far as the courts are concerned or the courthouse is concerned are the calendars, you know, the, those, those big calendars that we're all used to having, the arraignment calendars with 120 cases on them and everybody brings their mother and their brother with them. The, 
you know, jury trials. How does a jury trial look in a courtroom that can only have 11 people in it if you go by six foot social distancing? How do you have a jury of 12 when your courtroom isn't big enough? Right. So lots of things to figure out and right. uh, some interesting options being put out there. So, uh, Matt, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll sort of go to you next. You know, Robin and I, I think, uh, both began our careers uh, really doing defense work. Um, and I, and I, I did some defense work probably till about 15, uh, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and, and, you know, defense work, I mean, I, and, and I think Chris would probably agree with me about this to some extent, it's more reactive than proactive because, um, you know, when somebody's filing the lawsuit, they're trying to, they're trying to get some kind of relief. And if you're defending, you're trying to, to, to fend off or show why they're not entitled to that. And of course, a lot of the work that you do is with insurers or other people who are corporations that have sort of professional claims handling, you know, practices. So how has this uh, affected uh, them and how is it uh, uh, affected their view of, of, of claims that, you know, we're not really having jury trials? And, you know, I know a lot of folks talk about how cases settle on the courthouse steps. That's usually when both both sides know what their risk is, uh, uh, the, the point at which they know uh, it's about to leave their hands. So uh, how, how are you and your clients dealing with the, with the situation? Well, good question. Let me say this. Uh, insurance companies want to close files. And as soon as they can close a file, they uh, like that. Mm-hmm. The, the efficient resolution of a case. So now is an opportunity to engage in the reasonable resolution of these cases. Uh, that may not be to the economic benefit of the defense right. lawyer at the given time, but uh, you know, if we defense lawyers uh, can fairly and reasonably and efficiently resolve these cases, then there'll be another case that we'll handle thereafter. So what I've seen now is a push by certain insurers. I even had an insurer within the last two weeks send me an email and ask me to identify every single case and, and in, inform them as to how I was going to reach out to the other side to attempt to resolve it. And the reason they asked me about that was because they thought that once this order lifts and once we start to move back to a sense of normalcy, they're going to be flooded with new cases. So they want to close. (laughs) Right. Right. And and, and I suppose too, you know, from, uh, I mean, and it's, uh, I want to be very clear. I'm not being critical of this, but insurance companies, you know, part of their job is to try to grow the money that, you know, that they have so that they have enough money to pay, pay claims, you know, at some later and, and, you know, with the stock market's been up and down, the net results being sort of flat. So they're not really able to make a lot of money, uh, you know, off that uh, right now anyway, it seems to me. Well, you would think that the longer they can hold the money, the better they would like it. But Mm -hmm. I can't say that I've necessarily experienced that. I think everybody has metrics and the people that work at these insurance companies, they've got somebody looking at them and they're using metrics. And one of the metrics is how long are your files open? Right. How much right. are you spending to defend the case? And let's move the case to resolution. So that would benefit plaintiff's bar, I would think. Yeah. And the, and the liability, you know, for a company with their stock price might be affected by having a greater number of liabilities, you know, as well. So, Chris, uh, you, you represent a lot of uh, individuals uh, who are, you know, who have claims and who uh, were maybe not making it very well in the, the, in the pre-COVID-19 uh, world financially because they were hurt on the job or because they were uh, in a car wreck or because of medical malpractice or whatever else. Uh, h- how has this affected them? 
Hey, Lester, interestingly enough, I don't think I've had one call from a client saying I'm in a hurry or I need to get something done. Um, as you know, on our side of the case, you try to set people's expectations early on, make them explain that certain things have to be done to get the value of the case. And so, at least in our practice, we've been very fortunate that people do not seem to be in an urgent mood or a need to get the case resolved. And I echo what Matt said. I mean, my our experience, and of course, it's only six six weeks or so, but um, resolving and the cases that aren't resolving are cases that just there's a difference in opinion about the value of the case. And you know, that's that's going to be for a later day of trial. But the cases that are resolving, people put their heads together and they say, yeah, that's that's the fair value of the case. That's the settlement value of the case, and we can resolve. Yeah, I've, I've, I've settled two cases, you know, through doing uh, Zoom mediations and whatnot. So I was going to say, let's talk a little bit about virtual court, Judge Brown, virtual hearings, virtual mediation. I know Chris has done a couple of virtual mediations. Matt probably has, too. Um, I've done depositions, hearings. Um, Judge Brown, how's that working for you? And are, do you feel like you're missing anything in hearings by Zoom or, or virtual hearings? Scheduling, I think, is the biggest issue from my standpoint. As far as the interaction with the attorneys, uh, I think it's great because you know you're 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 right there, what two feet from from you feel like two feet from them, um, and I can see them, I can hear them. Um, I, I think it's fantastic just from the standpoint of um, the ability to see it here. As far as missing anything, um, you know, I, I don't think so. I think the scheduling is really the biggest issue that I personally am facing. You know, I, attorneys, um, we're all famous for saying something's going to take five minutes when it's going to take 15. And if you're in a hearing uh, virtually, it's hard to tell the other people that thought they were going to start a hearing at three um, hey, go get a cup of coffee and check back in uh, at 3.30 because this case that I'm in right now is running over. I mean, you can do it. You know, we certainly have the ability to communicate with people that, that aren't in that particular hearing, but it's just, um, it, it's, a, it's a challenge to schedule. It's a challenge to take one case that might be a short case ahead of a, a case that maybe on the calendar is behind it, but it, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be much shorter. Um, but I, I think um, we're, we're, I, I'm definitely getting more comfortable doing it. That's, that's for sure. Chris, how about the virtual mediations that I know you've conducted in the last few weeks? Can you tell us about those, how yeah. they worked, how they worked and if you thought it was a, a detriment or benefit or the same? Um, I, it's kind of a case-by-case -case basis, Robin, but I, my experience so far, and actually we've done four uh, virtual mediations in the last six weeks, and uh, we've had, I think, two resolved and two did not resolve, and, and if I was being honest about it, if we were in person, I think the same results would have happened. I don't think it would have made any difference whether we were in person or by Zoom or virtual mediation as to whether those cases were wrong. Again, it's just cases that the lawyers and then the uh, 
adjusters and people. We just have a big difference of opinion about what, at least at this stage, what the case is worth or what is not worth. The, the, the cases it did resolve, um, it, it was really as if we were together. Um, and I, I frankly, from my standpoint, being in the middle of the state, I was so glad I didn't have to drive to Atlanta and mediate a case. So, that, so it was, it's nice from, from that standpoint, logistically, particularly the lawyers even further south from me who have to come to Atlanta. I mean, I'm sure they're, they're loving virtual whatever so that they don't have to get in the Atlanta traffic. Matt, how about you? Well, the one thing, just to add to what Chris said, if Chris is on the other side, Lester, or you are on the other side of me, I want my claims person, the decision maker, to hear from you and to hear from your client. Because I want them, they've probably never seen your client, they've never evaluated your client. I would think that would help you maximize what you can do with the case. It's challenging when we have Zoom. It's not as effective. But I've had three Zoom mediations within the last three weeks, and they've all settled. So. Yeah, I, I was I was going to ask you, Matt, because uh, uh, when I was in the defense business, I had one one client who represented the power company, and the the claims guy would go to me. You go with me to a lot of depositions and mediations. I didn't have to write those letters back, but uh, but with particularly people who handle a large volume of claims. And this is something that I think the, the public doesn't realize sometimes, but you know, for, for a, for a plaintiff in a case, that's, that's their case. And that's usually their only case. They might have a workers comp and a car wreck case or whatever, but that's usually their only case. So they're in to go in there and be in there and hearing that. And so sometimes with the claims people, it's not that they're uncaring or, or, or don't want to see exactly what the other person looks like, but they've got, a hundred files, you know, sitting over there to do that. And so I've run into situations where, uh, you know, the, the decision maker, the claims decision maker doesn't show up, you know, they just kind of phone it in and that's kind of frustrating, you know, sometimes to, to the folks on the other side. So my question is, I'm wondering if having had this, uh, the virtual mediation thrust upon us a little bit. Is it something that you see that claims people maybe like more and it's really easier to get them to participate in uh, because, you know, they, they can do it without having the travel time uh, back and forth and that kind of thing. I think it is. I don't think it's as effective as having them present there. Um, certainly the type of case, would or would not necessarily arguably justify them being actually present because they've got a volume like you mentioned. So yes, I think Zoom would be a great benefit so they can at least see the plaintiff, see the lawyer, see any presentation, which I always invite because I, my role is just to continue to funnel information with evaluation, but funnel information that's new to the decision maker. I would think that's what the plaintiff's bar would want me to do. I think that's part of my job is to get that information over there. It also helps me cover my rear end in case I end up on the wrong side of a verdict and somebody wants to say, you didn't tell us this. Well, I'm telling you everything. So that's my role. I, I always thought that, that that's one of the, uh, one of the most difficult things for defense, civil defense lawyers to convince other people of is it's not their money. They're not the one that's paying, you know, and the whole thing. So uh, uh, judge, let me go to you for just a second and ask you, can you, can you ever see just logistically uh, uh, put the constitution and 
uh, other other things aside for a moment. But could you could you see handling a a virtual uh, a Zoom trial via some device like Zoom? Do you think that's something that could actually uh, really be done at some point? Are you referring to a, a jury trial? Yes, an actual jury trial. Because now what we're doing, it just, because we have a lot of listeners who, uh, you know, aren't lawyers, and the distinction between a hearing and a trial uh, is 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 sometimes uh, lost. You know, we have a lot of hearings where we get, go in front of a judge and we argue uh, what the law ought to be, or we argue about what ought to be admissible, or something like that. But ultimately, you're typically headed for a jury trial where you have uh, six or 12 citizens come in, actually hear witness testimony, then go and deliberate and reach a verdict about that. And so that's a, that's a, that's a lot to pack into a zoom meeting. And it's a lot different from what, you know, the appellate courts seem to have just sort of seamlessly gone into uh, uh, hearing, hearing arguments from lawyers because there's, there's less moving pieces and so I just wonder if, you know, if logistically that's, that's anything that you think you could ever manage. Could it be managed? Yes. Do I think it's realistic uh, to have jury trials virtually? Um, at this point, I don't see it. I, you know, un, with my knowledge of what technology we have available right now, um, I don't think, first of all, that you can have the safety controls in place that you need when you have a, a jury impaneled. Um, there's too many options for outside influences. Um, it, you know, anything short of a jury trial, uh, certainly, but I also believe uh, as a, you know, as, as a practicing attorney, when you're in that courtroom, I mean, I, I know, you know, Lester, when you're in front of that jury panel, you're trying to get to know them. You know, you're figuring out whose mama you know and where they eat dinner and have you run into them on the golf course. Um, you know, you try to, to really read uh, the people on that panel. And as an attorney, it would be really awkward, you know, to try to get a true feel for someone virtually. So I think it would be exceptionally hard to pick a jury and I think it would be exceptionally hard to manage it virtually. One of, one of the things that uh, we've talked about is if you were to do a virtual jury trial, how would you um, make sure every potential juror has high-speed internet, has a device, a tablet, or a laptop to be able to use? Uh, who would be responsible for supplying them? Where would they use them? Um, would you ask the attorneys to go in together and supply them to jurors? A uh, lot of questions that I'd, yeah, I don't see, personally as a trial lawyer, I don't see happening. I don't think I would ever consent to a virtual jury. But, but let me ask the panel this. Is, do you think it's a, a matter of consent or could a judge order you to do it? And, and if the judge did, what would you do then? Because I know what I would do, but <laughs> I'm curious what my other friends would do. <laughs> Matt, you want me to go? Um, I, I don't think anybody really knows the answer to the authority uh, of a court to order a virtual trial. I think I think that is a constitutional issue that would have to be decided. Um, I'm, I think I probably lean like you do, Robin. I would I would not. Uh, 
if I had a client who didn't want to do that, and I probably would advise them that it's you know untested waters, um, I would I would appeal that. I would not you know to a virtual trial. Um, I, the thing that I, I share, Judge Brown, my biggest concern, technology issues aside, is the the security associated with a trial. I mean, it, it's very easy to see in this environment how a juror can have two or three family members in the same room. Yeah. Maybe the juror is, a, is just by personality a shy person or not a very assertive person, and somebody not uh, a juror influencing that trial. I know that that is a, would be a huge concern because they're in rural venues. We try a lot of cases in rural venues. There are lots of issues at play in those rural trials that uh, perhaps are not, uh, everybody's not thinking about. Mm-hmm. Matt, I know you like to establish rapport with the jury just as much as a plaintiff's attorney does. What do you think? I agree with Chris. I, I would not be inclined to prefer any type of virtual trial over the presence in a courtroom of everybody who's important. I think accountability doesn't exist to the extent we would prefer it to exist when we're using devices. I, I just feel that way. I, I, I'm not in favor of it. Yeah. I don't know how we're going to solve this problem. <laughs> Maybe we go to six. Your yeah. no defense lawyers aren't supposed to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I know there was a defense lawyer in Macon, Chris, who uh, told me the other day that he actually made that offer. I don't know if it was to you or to somebody else. Well, I'll agree to six if you'll agree to cap your verdict at the insurance limits. And the answer to that was no. But I thought that was an interesting proposal. I do, too. That's not a bad compromise. I could, you know, I could see that being done in the right case. And I, you know, six-person juries, you know, state court, you have those. I've, I've tried to make it to six people. But um, that is that is something that the judges here at Macon are discussing. And, and they would like to do it. It's going to take consent from the defense side. And I suspect the plaintiffs will have to offer some carrot, like you're describing, Matt, to encourage uh, those, those trials happen. Well, I think uh, in metropolitan Atlanta courtrooms that tend to be pretty small, uh, I think even a six-person jury might be difficult. But in some of the rural uh, courtrooms that I, I know where you try cases a lot, Chris, I mean, I know you try all over the state, but I've tried one, for example, in Peach County that had the most magnificent courtroom you'd ever want to lay, like something out of a movie, you know. Uh, you could probably do six-person jurors because it's huge. But I don't know about our small courtrooms here. Yeah, I've heard, I've, I've, heard, uh, I've heard people complain that we used to have uh, great towering lawyers that tried cases in little wooden courthouses, and now we've got little wooden lawyers who, who try cases in, in great multi-story you know, courthouses. But some of those old courtrooms uh, really do have a lot of room you know, to sort of spread out uh, uh, in it. And, uh, they, and they probably lost – they were built that way so the whole town could come watch. And now they've sort of lost their allure because people would, you know, stay home and, you know, watch Goliath on Amazon Prime or whatever. But I, I share your thoughts, Robin. The, the rural courthouses still, for the most part, are big courtrooms, and uh, you, you could easily do six-person trials. Interesting enough, in Chris County, you know, they, they many years ago tore down their big courthouse, their old big courthouse, built something that looked like an elementary school, 
And then they finally realized that was not a good one. Tore the elementary school courthouse down and have built a new courthouse that goes back to, you know, years and years ago. And they got great courtrooms, two big great courtrooms to try cases in. So have, have any of you taken a, taken a deposition by, uh, by, by Zoom or by video? I've taken one, Lester, and, uh, and it's, it's what I would call a non-confrontational deposition. Mm-hmm. I just simply want to know what the person knew. But I, and Matt may disagree with me about this, but I had a hard time accepting that I can get the same information from a witness through a virtual deposition that I can in person. I mean, frankly, you know, part of a lawyer, you have is an adversarial system, and you have witnesses who may not really want to tell you everything, and they may not want to have to agree with a certain document that you're putting in front of them. And it's your job as an advocate to try to get them to agree. Um, and I think that has to be done in person myself. Yeah, I had I talked to a defense lawyer the other day that I was. Uh, working on settling a case with, and uh, and he uh, had taken one and said that if he, uh, you know, like for a car wreck case, you know, where where were you going? Was light green? You know, that kind of thing. It worked pretty well, but he didn't think it would work very well for things like a medical malpractice case uh, or or a commercial case where you had a lot of documents and mm-hmm. you know and things. Uh, things sort of like that. So, uh, Judge Brown, when I yeah, go ahead, Matt. Just very quickly, um, I had an insurance client that instructed me not to take a Zoom deposition of a plaintiff. I thought it was a simple case. It wasn't a major case. I didn't think it'd be that big of a deal, but they refused. They did not want me to do it. They wanted me to wait. And another case where I said we should go ahead and take a discovery deposition of the treating doctor. I just want to ask him within 30 minutes what his opinions are because I can't really tell from the records. Is it related or not? Why? Why not? What's the evidence? No big deal. But I agree with Chris. I wouldn't touch, you know, uh, an important, so to speak, deposition of a plaintiff necessarily in a, you know, big injury case or an expert in a med mal case. I agree with that. Absolutely. Interesting point of view. Uh, I've done three depositions. while we're on the shutdown and uh, two of them were the defense attorneys taking my experts in a med mal case. And and you would know the, you would know the guys, you would know the defense attorneys. And, and it was really short compared to a typical expert witness test uh, deposition. Very short. Uh, I guess they got what, you know, I guess they get okay. (laughs) Um, It's interesting. They didn't have any problem, but I don't understand even the, the need to do the expert depositions, we're not going to be trying. I don't think we're going to be trying that case anytime soon. So I don't know what the rush was, but they felt like they needed to go ahead. Hmm. So I said, okay. So Judge Brown, are we going to be backlogged if, uh, if we get to the point that 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 it, uh, the courts get back to normal here? Are we going to have uh, cases backlogged uh, uh, because we can't do jury trials right now? I think a lot of that's going to be up to all of uh, you attorneys out there. <laughs> uh, hopefully there will be uh, more settlements uh, possibly than normal. Um, I'm hoping that the, the reverse isn't true. I hope that uh, there's not a, um, you know, a, a drag your feet uh, opinion from, uh, from one side or the other. But, you know, definitely we're, we're going to have somewhat of a backlog. One thing that we're trying to do, we are doing in Gwinnett um, as a joint um, state court bench is we're sending out a calendar. Uh, this is our plan anyway. 
send out a calendar in June that looks like a jury trial calendar, but it's not. So it would go out with all the cases on it that, for example, might be called in for a jury. And what we're seeking uh, are announcements. We're trying to get information from the attorneys about would you consent possibly to a bench? Would you consent to a six-person jury? So that we know when jury trials do get up and running, we'll have a better feel for our calendar. And those six-person juries, those are going to be the first cases that get tried. So if somebody really wants a trial, you know, let, let the court know, hey, we'll go with six, because that's going to be a lot more manageable than when we get back to 12. I'm, I'm just not sure when that will happen. But there's definitely going to be um, a backlog in particular for the really big civil cases, the really big complex cases that take a week or two to try. We only have so much time that we can designate for those trials anyway. A lot of what we're using are senior judges to come in and help us with those lengthy trials. And so just the scheduling of those is difficult. Um, and there's only so much space and so many courtrooms to be used. So a little bit of a backlog, but we're going to try to do everything else that we can to get cases in and resolve short of those lengthy jury trials. I'm, I'm curious what the panel thinks it will take before we can get back to 12-person jury trials like before this crisis. Uh, is it going to take a vaccine? Is it going to take um, a, a reliable treatment? Or, or are you going to have to screen everyone who comes into the courthouse by temperature or have some sort of proof that they're not uh, COVID positive. What, what do you guys think about that? Matt? Well, herd immunity or a vaccine or the developing science to support the uh, safety precautions that we need. I don't really know what else to say about that. I think I don't see jury trials this year, uh, yeah. especially if we have a rebound in the fall. Mm -hmm. I don't think I see jury trials either until, I mean, I just, until we have, a, I think, a vaccine, because I don't know how you are able to compel a member of the public to come in to serve on a jury when you may be putting their life at risk. I don't know how the state does that. And how do you assemble in a jury assembly room, say, DeKalb County? We've all seen that room, or Gwinnett County, obviously. I mean, you pack everybody in, and they have to stand around and go to the front and sign in and sit down next to somebody. and Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't want to do it. I wouldn't be willing to serve right now. Yeah, this is Chris. I mean, even if, even if a court decided to compel, send out subpoenas, people are just simply not going to come. Uh, I mean, and so what, what's the court going to do? Are you going to arrest them and put them in? No, the sheriff's will rebel. I mean, the last thing a sheriff wants is more people in his jail right? or her jail. Last thing an elected judge wants to do is arrest a person for not showing up for jury duty during a virus crisis either. That order will not have my signature. <laughs> I wouldn't think so. I'm, 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 I'm going to throw a, another aspect of the COVID-19 thing out there because it's been a, um, it's been batted around sort of politically. And I, I'll tell you what my, my thought is, and I kind of want to see, uh, Poll, poll around the horn here and see who agrees with me and, and who doesn't agree with me. But there's been a lot of, there was some stuff in the governor's uh, initial uh, order 
uh, or maybe it was the, the subsequent order about providing some sort of immunity for people who were uh, uh, medical professionals who are working with, you know, COVID-19. Uh, there's been some talk in the U.S. Senate, uh, for example, that if there's another round of, of stimulus, that this really needs to be tied to some sort of immunity for employers where uh, people are uh, are uh, uh, going back to work, that they can't sue their employers over coronavirus and whatnot. And uh, I guess my view of all that is, uh, you know, I, I just don't think you'd have a very good medical malpractice case uh, against a hospital that was overrun with uh, coronavirus patients, you know, or uh, it wouldn't be something I'd want to waste my time with. And uh, I, my feeling about all that is sort of, the jurors know all that, just like the jurors are afraid to come down to the courthouse, you know, while they're, uh, well, you know, while this is, this is an issue, this pandemic is an issue. And uh, so I, I thought it's sort of self-fixing, you know, out there. Um, and, and I don't think insurance companies would evaluate a claim as being worth a whole lot, you know, in settlement, you know, if you were suing a hospital or whatever. On the other hand, you know, if you've got some, uh, 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 you know, uh, nursing home, we've heard some pr real horror stories, you know, about things like that. You know, jurors can, they, they can see the plaintiff's side, you know, on that as well. So I'm curious to, to, to think, and, and I'll just start with, uh, I'll start with the plaintiff, uh, with Chris up there. Uh, do, do you agree that that's something that sort of has its own, 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 fill, own fix baked into it? Yeah, I do. That's, you know, obviously, I mean, I, I'm fundamentally opposed to government just deciding that this is going to get immunity or this is going to get a different legal standard because of a particular event. Um, I think the best people I've ever seen in our society to figure that out is a jury, whether it's six or eight or 12. And so why tinker with the rules? Let the jury figure that out. And just like you say, are they going to hold a doctor uh, liable for trying to best for a COVID-19 patient? Heck no. I mean, are you wasting your money and time on that case? Absolutely. But, but, but let them evaluate, uh, if, did the nursing home properly treat its patients? Weeks and weeks after COVID was known about, did they properly take the steps? Let the jury decide that. Don't, before the jury ever gets a chance to decide it, just, just give somebody blanket immunity. I think everybody has to be reasonable and follow the law in the context of an employer. I would think that workers compensation make. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is, uh, uh, I think it scares, uh, you, you, you know, it, it, it sounds better as a political thing. And I, and I suspect that all of us have a, we certainly have a greater knowledge than average about the system and how it works, but, uh, uh, we, we have a greater trust in it, you know, probably too. Judge, you, you, judges don't get to put their own opinion in very often, but uh, we'll give you the opportunity to do that now. Uh, all I can say is I see a whole lot of uh, motions for summary judgment coming down the road that are going to look a whole lot different than they have in the past. <laughs> well, I, I live in, um, in Druid Hills, literally around the corner from Emory University Hospital, uh, and the CDC. And when I go on my walks down Oakdale Road or Springdale, it's house after house has a sign about the Emory healthcare workers being heroes and thank God for our heroes and thank you so much CDC. And um, there, there's no way I'm 
trying a med mal case anytime soon in this area. That's for sure. I mean, the, the, all the healthcare workers are, are now lauded as heroes. Um, I'm going to let, I've got some pending med mal cases. I'm going to try to let all this die down before I even push them. I just think it needs to, we just need to get over this before I take those to court. So, uh, have any of you, and I think I think most of us on this, uh, uh, you know, are probably uh, we probably all argued appeals and been in the appeals courts, but uh, but most of us are are more probably more active in the trial courts, you know, than we are in the appellate courts. Uh, have you all followed the uh, you know what the the Supreme Court, Georgia Supreme Court's had some oral arguments there also. Uh, 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 doing telephonically, the U.S. Supreme Court's doing some telephonic arguments. Have any of you uh, followed that or uh, have an opinion about how that's gone? This is Chris. I, I watched the oral argument uh, in, the, in the Georgia Supreme Court, which is a med mile case. And of course, I did that uh, you know, uh, in the same sort of fashion virtually. Um, and it seems to work fine. I think mean, consistent with what Judge Brown is saying, you know, oral argument in front of a judge or a panel of judges is, is this is a perfectly fine venue to do that. It'll it'll work fine. Um, and and arguably, maybe the lawyers might even be a little better prepared. It's easier for them to look at their notes and easier for them to look at and get organized in a table in front of them, perhaps. Um, and maybe some lawyers are a little more comfortable sitting down than they are standing up. But uh, I, I think there's just a big difference in oral argument in front of a judge or a panel of judges in a trial. That, that's a huge difference. Um, I just don't think virtual trials, we just don't have the technology yet. Maybe one day we'll have it, but I, I just don't see it today. Yeah. You know, uh, I do focus groups. I know you do too, Chris, and I know Matt does, but um, I don't even like to do virtual focus groups, even though they're kind of becoming the, the, the go-to now. I, I, I want the feedback right there, the rapport with those focus group jurors. I don't think I would trust the results even from a virtual focus group. What do you say, Matt? I agree with that. I, I, I don't think you get honest feedback yeah. to the extent you do when somebody is sitting there before you or engaged in a group dynamic, so to speak, with six other people in a room debating the issues or talking about the facts and evidence and how the law might apply. That's the way I see it. Now, I do believe these Zoom hearings, just to talk a little bit about what Chris had to say, and I agree with you. Yeah. I, I hope these Zoom hearings will even be a benefit to the court so they can become even more efficient. It takes a lot of time to assemble all these people and go through all this process. And I had a Zoom hearing today, a motion hearing on a Daubert case. We had the expert right there. We had the judge, all the lawyers, and the expert got to testify. I got to cross-examine him. I thought it worked fine. I didn't have any issue with it. And, you know, I had all my notes, Chris, right there. I had two computer screens going, and it was I thought it was easier. And that hearing started at noon. It was over by 1, and it took me five minutes to get there. I was going to say, it definitely uh, saved you driving time and, yeah. and, a, and a parking fee and right. <laughs> that sort of thing. No, yeah, yeah, you know, that's, uh, that's one of the big things, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm about, uh, 
uh, 40 minutes if there's no traffic outside Atlanta and about two hours if there is any traffic outside Atlanta. And when you're going to here and you're worried about, you know, am I going to make it on time? Because you got all those people there waiting on you. Don't want the judge mad at you, you know, for showing up late or your client wondering where you are. So there, there are some, uh, you know, some, some good, uh, uh, good aspects, uh, I think, to some of that. And uh, uh, so I'm going to ask uh, uh, Judge Brown to sort of finish up here. But, you know, one of the things that, uh, that out in the rural areas particularly that, that we hate, that, that we use all the time, but I, I've come to hate, is, is the so-called calendar call, you know, where uh, everybody that's got a case in front of the court all shows up in one of those big courtrooms. And, uh, it, you know, and the biggest lie other than your checks in the mail is ready when reached, you know, that we're going to, you know, we're going to be ready. You ready to try this case. And uh, now a lot of courts, and in particular as we have uh, younger judges and judges that are more technologically savvy, you know, now people are making announcements by, by email or, or, or we actually have this thing called the telephone that's been around for a long time. You could call the judge's office and, and make your announcement. So uh, do you see the calendar call uh, finally getting the kiss of death and COVID-19? And is there any other uh, change that you think is probably going to be permanent, is going to change us, is going to stick with us? We um, buried our calendar call, so to speak, uh, probably a year ago. We, yeah, <laughs> it's always great to see everybody, but uh, yeah, we, we stopped doing in-person calendar calls a long time ago. A lot of the, the judges in the circuit have, um, you know, begun doing uh, just phone-in calendar calls or email calendar calls, and I, I think that that will be uh, the way of the future for everyone. Um, the um, the one thing that I think we're going to see that we'll have to have to have some more technology trials and tests, but you know, arraignments are another thing. Uh, not just calendar calls for trials, but arraignments are another thing where we usually have 100, 120 cases, you know, coming in at one time. Um, you know, when, when we do arraignments, we usually don't even split them up between morning and afternoon. We throw 120 on a nine o'clock calendar. And, you know, we're usually done by, by noon or, or one. Um, that's not going to happen anymore. Dealing with pro se um, people, you know, unrepresented people that think that they, you know, they need to come to court, they need to see the judge, and they're not sure what to do otherwise. I think that's going to be the 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 population that we have to get comfortable with technology. We're looking at doing um, an online waiver of arraignment potentially in Gwinnett where someone would log on to Gwinnett Courts. They would view a video that would go through the normal arraignment dialogue where they're advised of, you know, what today is all about and you're going to be given a copy of your charges and these are the type of pleas you can enter. Um, they would electronically sign some sort of document saying that, you know, they were advised of all this. And then they would receive by email a copy of their, um, a, a copy of their accusation. And so I think that's, that's the way that we're all going to have to start thinking. You know, I, 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 I may be the only one uh, that, uh, other than you, Judge, on here that, that I, I have done and still do a fair amount of criminal defense, you know, work. And I tell clients all the time, the arraignment is a throwback when the, to when the population was illiterate. 
and could not read and you didn't have photocopiers, you know, you had scribes and they'd call people in front of the court and read the charges to them so that they understood it and could be prepared to come back. And, you know, nobody that has a lawyer is being arraigned anymore. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a docket control device uh, right now. Yeah, absolutely. And so that, that, that's going to change as well. Arraignments and calendar calls both are going to look very different. That's great. Well, uh, Robin, do you have any more questions for these folks? Or? No, no. I just want to thank the panel again for agreeing to, to be with us. And uh, I wanted to go through and let the listeners know where they can find out more about our each of our panelists on their websites. Judge Carla Brown, actually, Judge Brown, you have your own website. I was going to give the Gwinnett State, but you have your own um, and I didn't write it down, but is it judgecarlabrown.com or? It, it is. Judge Carla I, Brown. Yeah, I think that's what it is too. I, I saw it today, but judgecarlabrown.com. And you can learn more about uh, Matt Moffitt and his law firm at uh, grsmb.com. He gets the award for the most names in a law firm. And uh, Chris Clark, you can find out more about him and his firm at Clark Smith Sizemore. Com. And um, in closing, I want to say a couple of things. First, our podcast title is See You in Court, and Lester and I find it very ironic that our episode today is about not seeing you in court, uh, seeing you in virtual court. Uh, we're not, the, the irony is not lost on us about the name of our podcast. Uh, it's, it's sponsored by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation, and one thing we want to ask each uh, of our guests that appears on our podcast podcast is their definition, their personal definition or notion of what justice is or what justice means to them. Uh, we'll start with Judge Brown. Uh, Judge Brown, would you share with us your uh, definition of justice? You know, I, I tend to go simplistic on something like this, and my definition of justice is really just um, fairness, fairness and accessibility um, from the standpoint of being a judge. Uh, the the most important thing that I can do is to simply be fair. I think following the law comes without saying, um, but you know, consider um, consider that the people in a courtroom, while it may not be of worldwide importance to me or the lawyer, to that person that is there in court it is the most important thing going on in their lives at the time. And to listen and to be fair, I think is the, the biggest thing that I can do in order to respect um, everyone's right to justice. Oh, and I would say it is an opportunity for any individual, any entity, anybody in our democracy have their, their issue, their dispute, whatever their problem is, resolved in an unbiased, impartial, rules-based form that then has some oversight responsibility or, or, uh, beyond that. And if, if we will lose our democracy uh, if we do not continue to provide people the opportunity to have an unbiased, impartial rules-based form, whether that be a trial court or sometimes another form in administrative procedures so that people can get their issue uh, resolved. You, you, when you disenfranchise people from that sort of system, uh, you will have lost the democracy. 
Thanks, Chris. Matt? All right. Well said, opposing counsel. I agree. Well said, judge. Uh, This is what I think. I think justice is the fair and reasonable resolution of a dispute. And we lawyers on all sides and judge in the middle have a professional responsibility and obligation to advance that. Well said. Thank you, Matt. Thank you you all guests. We appreciate you and uh, thank you for being with us. Thank you all both. We really enjoyed this. Thank you. With COVID-19 all across uh, the, not just the country, but the world, uh, you have to, we've talked today about how it affects uh, our courts, but uh, the uh, one group that is probably the largest in the United States is the American Bar Association. And I've been fortunate enough to represent Georgia in the American Bar Association's House of Delegates uh, for about eight years now. And this week it was announced that the American Bar Association's meeting in Chicago uh, in July, end of July, 1st of August is going to be held virtually. And uh, that meeting is really a conglomeration of meetings because the ABA has uh, groups that just do uh, uh, personal injury stuff. They have groups that do corporate things, groups that do bankruptcy, judges, all this. So it's about, it's like about five conventions rolled into one. And uh, so they are planning to have nearly 500 meetings at this event that includes uh, convening the Board of Governors to discuss association matters and the House of Delegates, which has 500 members in it uh, to take up a number of policy proposals. So my, my kudos are off to the ABA because I think if they can figure out how to get all those those groups together and conduct a meeting like that, then we might actually have some hope of having a virtual jury trial at some point. Nice, nicely done. Uh, well said. Uh, my uh, event in the news this week that struck me is actually a criminal case, um, but because we're talking about jury trials and uh, because we have unanimous jury trials in Georgia, meaning that a jury's verdict must be all 12 or you don't have a jury verdict, um, is a case that came down from the United States Supreme Court this week, Ramos versus Louisiana. And the Supreme Court of the United States held that the Constitution requires all criminal trials to be by unanimous jury vote. In two states, it used to be in a bunch of states, but in, in finally, still in 2020, there were two states left that would uh, take away a person's liberty, put them in prison for the rest of their life based on a non-unanimous jury vote, 10 to 2 or 9 to 3. Uh, that was Louisiana and now I forget, but I think it was Oregon. 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 Uh, and uh, those are the only two holdouts so that technically this case applies to those two states, but it made it clear uh, that that is unconstitutional. Mr. Ramos will certainly get a new trial. He may just simply be released since he has served uh, a bit of time already. I bring that up because, and, and I'm not going to get into the greater political aspect of that opinion. There are some political issues involving that opinion that have others worried and concerned. But I do believe, and this was on, um, I don't remember the vote on the Supreme Court, but it was authored by Gorsuch. Gorsuch. 
can't pronounce his name very well. Um, and I think it said, I think it was right. I think it came out right that if you're going to put somebody in prison, if you're taking a citizen's liberty away, it should at least be by unanimous jury vote as we have here in Georgia. So I, 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 it's a long opinion, 90 pages. Um, but that, that struck me as a positive note from the United States Supreme Court this week. Absolutely. And with that, folks, thank you again for listening. Uh, thank you to the Civil Georgia Civil Justice Foundation, uh, our sponsor, and thank you to our uh, producer extraordinaire, Raz Misher. And uh, until we see you again, we'll see you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.